Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, and I am joined again by Jordan. Hi, Jordan. How are you going? I'm good, Arj. How do I sound? You sound crisp and clear and intelligent, as always. Why? Has something changed? New mics. <laughs> it's all very exciting. Hopefully, it's translating through, but we've both gotten fancy new mics, and we're having fun with them, so we'll see if that sounds any better on the other end. Yeah, well, hopefully, it's translating through. Yeah, well overdue. And I guess a belated happy Human Rights Day. Yes, happy Human Rights Day for, well, as of recording tomorrow, but as of published last Saturday. Yes, uh, our listeners will be listening on the other side of uh, Human Rights Day, which is a very um, topical hook for us today because it's probably worth reminding ourselves from time to time that privacy actually is a human right and it is defined within the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's Article 12. I should read it out because I don't think we reference that very important document often enough, but um, it's Article 12. It reads that no one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence, nor to attacks upon his honor and reputation. Everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. Good male language from the 1940s, first of all. His privacy, not her privacy. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is an important thing to remember, right? I mean, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed in, in 1948, wake of the Second World War, was everyone kind of realising that, oh dear, we can't just leave countries to manage their populations as they see fit. We really need more of an international framework for asserting that certain things are inviolable or certain things are super important and privacy is one of them. I like Human Rights Day as an excuse to kind of refocus on rights language when we're talking about privacy. I think it's super important in our context because it really often gets hidden in the debates that we have in Australia, I think, partly perhaps because we don't have great human rights records in some areas. We have this tendency to avoid talking about privacy as a human right in policy and regulatory discussions, you know, like even the reform, the Privacy Act reforms that are ongoing at the moment, they were prompted by an ACCC, Competition and Consumer Commission, inquiry into digital platforms and consumer protections and competition concerns in that context. That was the genesis of the current review of the Privacy Act. It wasn't human rights. You know, the language of the inquiry focuses on things like empowering consumers to make informed choices about how their data is processed, correcting bargaining power imbalances and information asymmetries between consumers and companies and between companies and companies. And, you know, privacy is kind of a useful tool for that. But let's use Human Rights Day to remember that also privacy is like a fundamental right. It's of intrinsic value in itself, right? Yeah, and I think that framing of privacy within a sort of broader context where it can potentially be traded off against economic progress, if you like, it puts it always at the mercy of the business trends of the day. And, you know, we have 
come through a, a period last 10 years where the real drive and the impetus has been on investing in technology and driving innovation and really companies trying to get ahead of the game in this data game, you know, trying to invest in all manner of analytics technologies and big data. And so if you leave it to a trade-off between innovation and privacy, you know, if you frame privacy as being within that broader trade-off, what we've seen, I think, over the last 10 years is that it hasn't always come out on the best side of that trade-off. It's been collateral damage to those kind of ambitions that we've had for economic progress, in inverted quotes. And the other problem with it, I think, at a more individual level is that we see that when privacy is very much about giving people choice, if it's just framed about giving people choice about how their data is processed, that's kind of a clear an explanation for these terrible online experiences we have where under the guise of choice, we are hit with so many pop-ups and terms and conditions and, you know, click to agree before you do something because the companies are basically saying, well, in service of privacy, we are required to ask for your consent and to give you detailed notices about everything we do. And as consumers, I mean, the, the things that we're expected to agree on are far too complex for us to agree on, and they're far too lengthy. We're incapable of being able to really process what's being asked of us. So one, it's extremely annoying and it's an extremely unpleasant experience. And two, it is completely ineffective as a way of safeguarding our privacy. That's exactly right. And the value of thinking of privacy as more in line with the human rights concept as opposed to a consumer protection or other concepts, part of that is it lets us recognize that choice is not the right model a lot of the time. Like there are certain things that we've decided as a society that people shouldn't be able to agree to. You know, like I can't sell myself into slavery. I can't sell a body part to someone in Australia. Those are things that we have decided that we will not permit individual choice in. And sometimes that's for a policy reason, but sometimes it's just because the market and consumer choice are the wrong model for regulating this. And like you're describing with online pop-ups and privacy policies and stuff, the, the idea that an individual can be across those things and, and can make a meaningful choice is just ridiculous, right? So there are some areas in privacy, and I think increasingly so with emerging AI technologies, facial recognition technologies, and so on, there are these areas that are emerging where the impact on people and the impact on society is such that like we actually kind of need to not leave it to individual choice we need to start making some decisions drawing some lines in terms of the way that a technology such as facial recognition the potential for that to collapse anyone's sense of privacy anyone's ability to be anonymous anywhere the effect of that on our autonomy our dignity our freedoms is actually so significant that it shouldn't be some opt-in thing. It's not, you know, I choose and I get a some kind of benefit. It's actually something that there's a pretty strong argument for us to say, well, we don't let people have that choice. You mentioned the word dignity there, and I think you often get a sense of what kind of privacy conversation you're having by the words that you're using. And so when we talk about 
consent and when we talk about did you give me enough notice about the use of this information it feels like we're very much in that transactional conversation around privacy and when we use words like dignity and we use words like autonomy and freedom it feels like we're starting to recognize more of that fundamental rights and i think it's interesting to see you know even some of the recent incidents and breaches we've had things like a medibank where the kind of information that was exposed, the impact on dignity and the impact on, you know, people's sense of agency and control over their lives. And it's a very different conversation, but it's one I think that incidents like that have shown that we need to keep our eye on. Like it's not just a matter of your ability to agree or not agree to trade away your autonomy. You shouldn't have to trade away your autonomy. Yeah. And what we didn't say after the Medibank breach is, well, those customers should have chosen a better health insurance provider, right? Those customers should have read the privacy policy and reviewed Medibank's security arrangements. We, we don't say that. We focus on the impact to them and their right to not be harmed in this way. We default into that kind of dignity and rights kind of language. The other way of kind of framing this rights versus markets and choice distinction is the US versus the EU kind of conception of privacy and approach to privacy regulation. You know, the US famously still doesn't have a federal national privacy law. The primary way that the US regulates privacy is through the Federal Trade Commission, right? It's a competition and consumer protection regulator. And that's the kind of framework for thinking about it. Whereas the EU is like the polar opposite, which is why there's often some friction between the two. The EU is really focused on privacy as a right, these ideas of like dignity and autonomy and freedom from being surveilled. And they're much more willing to trade off economic imperatives in favor of those fundamental rights. And we've seen that just the other week with this leaked decision. There was a leaked decision of the European Data Protection Board, which is kind of the overseeing authority of European privacy regulators. They do coordination and adjudication of rules between the European national privacy regulators. If two national regulators disagree, it's the European Data Protection Board that kind of breaks the tie or determines the authoritative interpretation of EU privacy law. So there was a decision from the European Data Protection Board leaked on a couple of complaints about Facebook or Meta. Essentially, the complaints are about the fact that Facebook refuses to provide their service without personalized advertising. And the ruling itself hasn't been public, but there was media coverage that the Data Protection Board is going to rule that Facebook can't use their terms of service as a justification to permit advertising. They can't condition acceptance of behavioral advertising on access to the platform. So now I guess it's over to the Irish regulator, the Data Protection Commission. They've been given about a month to, I guess, reflect on the board's ruling. And what's expected is that they'll issue a public order around that ruling and potentially to issue some fines as well. I guess the process is a reflection firstly of, I guess, how slowly things move. These complaints date back many years, back to May 2018, which was not long after GDPR came into force. And I guess we have already got some early signs that Meta are not entirely happy about the ruling. So pending the decision by the Irish DPC, we could still see an appeal from Meta to the Irish and EU courts. So very much still up in the air. There's some kind of process and legal detail here to kind of just go into in background, right? That 
just like in Australia, if you had a privacy complaint, you go to the regulator, regulator might make a decision. If the company that you complained about doesn't like that decision, they might challenge that in court. It would work its way through the courts. You'd get a final decision eventually. Same very high level process here, right? The complainant goes to the regulator for Facebook. It's Ireland because Facebook's headquartered in Ireland. Um, Go to the regulator with your complaint. There's an added step in the EU process where the Irish regulator kind of makes their decision and other uh, regulators can object to the supervising the data protection board. And so I think that's what's happened in this case, that the, the Irish regulator was, it sounds like, happy to waive Facebook's conduct through as compliant and other regulators disagreed, went to the supervising authority, got a decision. All of that's taken like four and a half years And that's even before any kind of legal challenge, right? So this whole thing's going to have to work its way through the courts and it's already been four years. So just the timing on this stuff is pretty crazy. Yeah, and it probably bears mentioning like how significant it is though. I mean, it's taken a long time and it's still got some time to run, but we're fundamentally talking about the lifeblood of the Facebook business model, which is to be able to do this kind of highly personalized behavioral targeting based on you know the user's data. And the second part of the equation is that Facebook is such a compelling platform for people to want to use in order to connect with their friends. And they are left in a situation where they don't get to make a choice really around how their information is used in order to access the service. It's kind of Facebook's way or the highway. You accept to use it. And if you accept to use it, you're going to have your data used by Facebook in order to do this kind of behavioral targeting. You don't have any other alternative. And so the stakes are very high because it goes to that core of that usage. The basis for the decision is essentially around a requirement within GDPR that organizations need to have a legal basis for processing personal information. And the relevant ones are obtaining consent or for the performance of a contract or a legitimate interest. And the complaint essentially makes the case that none of these three things apply in the way that Facebook's running the platform. So they shouldn't be doing this. That's it, right? They don't have explicit voluntary consent to the standard that's required. You know, they haven't gotten someone to explicitly opt into behavioral advertising. It's not necessary for the contract. You know, I think Facebook's arguing that they have a contract with you to provide a social media service and Part of that deal is that they do behavioral advertising. The regulator argument against that would be that the behavioral advertising is part of your broader organizational activities that fund the service. It's not part of the direct contract for a social media service. It's not necessary as part of the delivery of that service. And so you can't rely on that. And then EU has this broad legitimate interest justification that involves a you have to do a rights-based trade-off, a rights-based weighing of the organization's interest to do behavioral advertising and the individual's interest in privacy and the kind of impacts and public interest impacts that that activity brings. And so the regulator position, it sounds like, is that, well, that doesn't, that trade-off fails as well, that the public interest in privacy outweighs Facebook's interest in in making a buck. Some of the coverage around this was about how Facebook had kind of through this process and through the ruling kind of switched horses in terms of which of those 
legal basis it was claiming. And so obviously, originally, the focal point around it was around whether they were sufficiently gaining consent. And when that was sort of proving to be not something they could really stand behind, that they switched horses to say that it's more around the performance of a contract, which I think in one of the pieces I read was quite striking because it means that Meta is basically needing to make the case that the users of Facebook and Instagram are signing up to Facebook to receive targeted ads. Like, I mean, that is just bizarre. The idea that that is the contract, you know, we wouldn't need that catchphrase, that cliched catchphrase about if you haven't paid for the product, you are the product. We wouldn't need that if everybody understood that what they were signing up for was to receive ads. I mean, it's just crazy. Yep, yep. I'm going to log on to Facebook to view some ads. I mean, it feels that way <laughs> sometimes these days, the level of ads in the stream. <laughs> it does feel that way. But, but yeah, no, yeah. I, I think that's really true. And it, it goes to this broader point, right? Like putting aside the kind of legal details, GDPR details, So much of online experience now, we're forced to opt in, right? The baseline is that we get tracked and you've got to do all this work with cookies and tracker blockers and advertising blockers and so on to try to like avoid that. And what this is moving to, and this is kind of relevant to what we're going to talk about last, it's part of this broader move to like force organizations to have a direct relationship with people, a direct opt-in and some transparency around what they're actually doing, right? And it's really interesting just how hard Facebook is fighting that and how much of an impact it's likely to have on their business, just requiring them to ask or to allow people to opt out of tracking and behavioral advertising. So like after this decision leaked, Meta's stock price took a 5% hit just on the basis of this anticipated decision. That's because everybody expects that as soon as you give people an option, they're not going to click, yes, please track me, right? They're going to click, no, I'd prefer not to have behavioral ads. There's a bit of a case study from Apple, which primarily affected Facebook, but also others, um, introducing their app tracking transparency function on iPhones uh, about a year ago. So that essentially gave users a pop-up saying, hey, currently we let this app share an identifier with other apps so that they can track your behavior across different apps. Would you like to continue doing that or not? And the vast majority of people obviously say, well, no, I would prefer less tracking, please. That's had a really significant impact on Facebook's revenue. There's something like $10 billion worth of revenue that it's wiped off Facebook because, again, the vast majority, 75 plus percent of people say, no, thank you. I would prefer less tracking, please. I always, in these conversations, remember the contrast you have pointed out in the past between how Facebook talks about this kind of behavior to users versus how it talks to businesses, the the advertisers. And recently, I'll put it in the show notes, but I found one of their pages that is for the purpose of advertisers where they talk up this targeting capability and how plain it is, how precisely and how in such a granular way they can target people based on their behaviors, based on their demographics and whatnot. That is clearly the heart of their business. And to take that away, it makes perfect sense that they would have the sort of share price hits that they're already experiencing. Um, I guess the only other thing I want to add to this is just to sort of draw back to our earlier part of this conversation about the distinction between how we talk about privacy, either as a 
human rights issue or a consumer protection issue. But though this is very much framed out of the GDPR, a lot of the conversation is around those concepts like consent and like is it the performance of a contract that kind of aligned to things that seem to be more in that consumer protection space. But the impacts of this behavioral targeting model, again, are very much about the fears that Facebook can kind of prey on people's vulnerability and, you know, target ads or target things to people that are defenseless because we know their susceptibility to buy them or to act on those ads. The fear of discrimination because of the sort of information that can be used in this targeting. So it's just an interesting thing to note, I think, that the impacts and the larger things that are at stake with a behavioral ad targeting model tend to be those things like vulnerability, like discrimination, which are very much around human rights, but sometimes the mechanisms are consent and contracts and whatnot. Yeah, no, for sure. And the the difference in approach, I think, comes out in how they think about consent in this context, right? Like the standard for consent is a lot higher than just, you know, was the information available in a privacy policy and did you choose to use the product? The analysis that the European Data Protection Board and European courts apply is what is the impact of this behavior on individuals? And is the ease of access to information, is the quality of the consent appropriate to how serious this is? And I think they rightly put behavioral advertising in this really high impact bucket in terms of privacy and rights. And given that high impact, you don't get to say, oh, it's part of a bundled service. You don't get to bury it in the privacy policy and say, well, you should have read it. If you use the service, you consent to this. The European rights-based approach, I think, comes out here in saying, no, you've got to like put it right in front of people and walk them through it. You've got to be very sure that they understand what they're signing up to because this affects their rights. So the final thing we wanted to talk about was some warnings over the last week out of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission about health insurers and how they are using some of the incredibly rich and sensitive information that they have about their customers. So it was a warning from the ACCC in a Senate report that health insurers are creating big honeypots of customer data through these reward schemes and this craze of new wellness apps that are being created. And the ACCC are particularly worried about this in the context of what we saw with Medibank, you know, incredibly rich health information that if not well secured could be exposed in a cyber attack. So the warning essentially from the ACCC was that health insurers need to be a lot more alive to the sensitivity of this kind of information. The ACCC is just pointing out that as much as there's a sort of drive to do more with this data, we've seen what can happen through a Medibank and uh, insurers need to be much more serious about weighing up the risks before they go on and do these data-driven initiatives. The common thread here, I think, is what's motivating some of these insurers and loyalty programs to collect their own data because there's been a ratcheting up of privacy laws over time and In the past, a lot of these organizations would just rely on your Facebook or your Google to do really granular, really well-targeted behavioral advertising. And increasingly, as we see in the EU decision, that's not a sustainable model. That model where you have a Facebook or a Google sitting in the middle and tracking everything that everybody does and then selling that out to other companies is increasingly problematic. 
And so what you see is this move of these companies towards what's called first-party data, them having a direct relationship with a person and leveraging that to collect the information that they want to use for marketing. And so you see this rise of like loyalty programs, subscription programs, these health and fitness apps where you're providing someone value, you have an into their life and you can collect all this behavioral data directly. We see it in mergers and acquisitions as well. We talked about iRobot getting bought by Amazon, these organizations looking to buy elements of data. That direct relationship data is much easier to do from a regulatory standpoint. It's not going to get outlawed in the next few years, whereas that third-party tracking data is increasingly difficult to do legally. So perversely, I think the ratcheting up of privacy regulations is driving more and more organizations to collect data directly, which as the ACCC is warning, is leading to its own risks. That's really fascinating. And then I think the other maybe perverse impact of a well-meaning regulatory position is this idea within the health insurance industry of community ratings. So you know, in Australia's health insurance setup, there's this idea of community ratings, which basically means that everyone pays the same premium for the same policy. You can't discriminate based on someone's health status or how many claims they're going to make. So there's this kind of level playing field from a consumer perspective, but from the health insurer's perspective, it doesn't allow them to kind of maximize how much they can sell their premiums for. So they probably look for other ways they can on-sell services And that's kind of driving, okay, well, if we can create wellness apps where we can create other points of entry, these reward schemes where we can create other points of entry to direct people to services that are away from the premium because we're sort of locked in on the premium front, well, then let's do that. And so in that sense, I think there's another perverse impact there of this well-meaning community rating system leading to greater acquisition and use of personal health information to do clever things and find other ways to be profitable. That's depressing that it's a profit motive. I had my first look at these health apps was this really perhaps naive, nice view that like obviously it's in a health insurer's interest to keep its subscribers healthy. Like that makes sense, right? Like if I'm providing health insurance and I can like decrease the amount of sickness in my members by 1%, I'm going to make a 1% profit. Fantastic. But yeah, it sounds like it's, you know, maybe that's part of the motivation, but there's like a data grab type motivation in there too. I mean, there's certainly money to be made in health and well-being apps. I mean, that seems to have been made plain by the last year or so. All of the biggest celebrities and influencers you can think of seem to have attached themselves to this. The Hemsworths have got one um, that's been bought out by Jeff Bezos. So I mean, if that's any indication that it's one, highly lucrative, and two, you should worry about how the data is being used. It's, it's not <laughs> Jeff Bezos. It's Mark Bezos. Oh, the younger brother. The brother. Okay. There was also a um, – there's an Australian Instagram famous personal trainer, Kayla Itzines who recently sold her app for like $400 million. It's real big business. The the other thing here is calling back to our first point about Human Rights Day and human rights is this like trade-off between competition and human rights analysis of this stuff, right? Like on the one hand, there being lots of small wellness apps and health insurers branching out and experimenting with reward schemes and wellness apps and so on, innovative landscape, lots of new things, lots of people trying different things. 
this is a good thing. Uh, from a kind of privacy protection point of view, it's perhaps a little scarier, right? There are lots of new things. We don't know that they're well secured. They might be trying questionable things or rushing to deploy things without proper consideration that might have privacy or security risks. There's this kind of weird trade-off there that sometimes having one big central Facebook having all your data on the one hand, if we don't trust them, that's terrible. But on the other hand, if, if you do have a trusted central party, a lot of strong privacy identity solutions propose having, you know, a single central organization managing your identity or your sensitive data and doling it out to the right people and being able to trust that it's secure. There's some interesting trade-offs, I think, from a privacy point of view, whether or not you have one or several big, well-resourced organizations that can protect your data, or you have many competing, innovating organizations. It's, it's interesting that the competition and the human rights objectives can often pull in different directions. I think my kind of final takeout or observation is that we often talk about the different privacy regimes around the world you know, in terms of adequacy, we talk about this idea of like fragmentation and we need to kind of create a sense of adequacy, you know, make sure that our laws reach the same watermark as another jurisdiction's laws. And I think it bears remembering that sometimes these regimes are coming from completely different philosophical starting points. So we've talked about in Europe, this kind of human rights drive. And then in the US, it's like around the market and competition. And sometimes thinking of it in terms of like, have we lifted the bar high enough might not actually be valid because it's actually they're trying to do different things or they're coming from different places. There's probably always going to be some tension between some of these regimes as a result of that. You know, it's probably never going to be something that we can just fully resolve just by meeting the standard. We're trying to do different things in different places. So, I mean, it's not a positive way to end, but it feels like to some extent as practitioners, we might have to always have this kind of what feels like a hodgepodge regulatory landscape, not because of different levels of maturity, but because of different philosophies about privacy. Yeah, I think that's super true. And I think it's a really good lesson to bear in mind when we're talking about law reform, that there is not a right answer. There's not a correct way of thinking about privacy or regulating it, right? There's a bunch of different values, understanding kinds of privacy. We've talked about this before. There's different philosophical understandings of what the thing is, what it's trying to protect, different ways that regulation of personal information has utility in the economy and different objectives and stuff. And it's this big complicated trade-off and conversation about values, right? Which is kind of the point we're making right at the top, right? Is that it's not just competition. It's not just consumer rights. It's this fundamental autonomy, dignity, et cetera, interest as well. And we need to kind of hold both of those in our head at the same time. Nice way to end. Great to have a sort of 20 to 30 minute long conversation about human rights once in a while. So thank you for that. Yep. Happy Human Rights Day. Happy Human Rights Day. I'm <laughs> looking at the bookshelf. My action for the weekend might be to just read a couple of passages from Nelson Mandela's autobiography. That's what I'm going to do. Nice. I'll, I'll <laughs> find something right to read over the weekend as well. And we can recap next week. Yeah. Get together next week. Cool. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Arch.